Our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of of Shiltiel, Shiltiel the father of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, <laughs> Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elohim, Elohim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this genealogy even um, that you have included in Scripture to show us the significance of who Jesus is. So I pray that even in the the, uh, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, that we would discern you, that we would see you at work uh, through these words to show us who Jesus is and thus to show us who we are in him. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our passage this morning is not the most exciting (laughs) or the most engaging one in Scripture. Um, It's a genealogy. Essentially, it's a family tree. Of Jesus Christ. And let's be honest, um, genealogies are hard to read. We don't recognize a lot of the names, our eyes start to glaze over, our attention wanders, and we're kind of waiting um, for it to be over. We're, we're waiting for it to get to the point, to get to the story, to get to the action. Um, but like all genealogies in Scripture, and there's a handful here and there, this one is placed here at the very beginning of the New Testament. Um, for a reason. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, begins with this genealogy because it sets the stage for everything else. And in this genealogy, it, it, it sets the stage by doing some expected things, some things that we would expect a genealogy to do, but it also does some unexpected things. Um, and it shows us why the arrival of Jesus Christ is not just a good reason for another holiday, but why The arrival of Jesus Christ makes it the most significant of things. Why the New Testament writers speak about the arrival and the birth of Jesus into our world as the fullness of time. As the point 
where uh, history met its purpose. So let's look at this passage a little bit more in detail together. Um, and we'll start by looking uh, where the passage starts, verse 1. And in this section, I'm going to call it the uh, first things first. This is my first point. First things first. In the very first verse, we're told that this is the genealogy or the genesis, that's literally the word that's used, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, packed into this very just short one sentence is so much meaning and so much significance. First, um, as I mentioned, that word genealogy is the word Genesis. It's meant to call our minds back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And uh, it's meant to call our minds back to the way that book begins. Um, if you read the very first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, you'll see we get this picture of God creating our world by bringing um, order and fullness to uh, chaos and emptiness which is exactly what God is doing through Jesus. Into our world of chaos, into our world of emptiness, God is beginning in Jesus to bring about order that will reconcile us to Him and to bring about fullness that springs from Him, the fullness of His grace for us. But that's not all. Notice it calls Jesus the Messiah, or your translation may say the Christ. Now, Messiah and Christ, those are two words that mean the exact same thing. One is the Greek word and one is Hebrew. Um, now, if you've heard the name uh, Jesus Christ, you've heard it that way, Jesus Christ. And we tend to say it like Christ is his last name. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. But that's, that's not true. Christ or Messiah isn't a name. It's a title. Um, it tells us something about the person who holds that title. So in, in our world, we say doctor so-and-so. Doctor's not their name. That's their title. It tells us that they're an expert, that they have a doctorate in, uh, in whatever subject they've studied. Or we call someone a CEO, a chief executive officer. That's not their name. That's their title. It tells us that they're the person in charge of a company. Well, Christ or Messiah is the same thing. It's a title. It's a title that literally means anointed one. Now, to be a Messiah was to be a person that was set apart by God for a specific purpose. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there were three different types of people that were called Messiahs. There were prophets who spoke God's truth. There were priests who served God and the people in the temple. There were kings who served God by leading and protecting his people. These were the messiahs, the anointed ones. Um, now, over time, if you read through the Old Testament, this term messiah, all of these uh, prophet, priests, and king pointed forward and started to anticipate uh, that in the future, God would send a great messiah, a messiah to which all these little messiahs had pointed, a great prophet, priest, and king who would bring about the, the, the fullness of God's redemption for his people. Um, the Messiah, the Christ, set apart by God um, as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. So, the Genesis, as we said, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, like I said, this verse is packed full of meaning. But that's not all in about this first verse. Notice how it ends. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the entire life of Jesus, starting here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is marked by his connection to these two figures 
in Israelite history, Abraham and David. Two of the key moments of the Old Testament, if you read through, is Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham and makes a promise to him that through Abraham, he's going to bless every family of the earth, that God is beginning a redemptive work that's going to happen through a descendant of Abraham. That's one key promise. A thousand years later, God makes a promise to David. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17 that he's going to bless David's line, a descendant of David, by establishing a king over his kingdom who will reign and rule in righteousness. Um, And so the point of Matthew saying here, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the point is he's saying that Jesus, as this great Messiah, is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises made to Abraham and made to David. That Jesus was the one to whom these promises pointed along the one through whom God was going to bring his kingdom, his gracious reign as king to earth. And so that's what we have just in the first verse. But Matthew doesn't just leave it there. He takes us next in the next verses on this whirlwind tour of how we get to Jesus, how we get from Abraham to Jesus in the first place. And that brings us to uh, my second point, the shady family tree. To put it simply, if you read through, starting in verse 2, you'll see that this is, as a family tree, this very complicated and surprising and, and even ugly at times. It has some branches that you'd probably want to cover up or <laughs> cut off altogether. It has some sections you'd probably want to pretend like weren't there. Now, this family tree is set up by, Abra- by uh, Matthew in three different sections. The first section is verses 2 through 6, and it's an age of uh, hopeful anticipation. It begins with Abraham and God making his promise to him, and it builds out and it follows that family tree from uh, Abraham being one person that God's made a promise to, to becoming a family, to becoming a confederation of tribes, to ultimately becoming a kingdom under David. So that first section is this age of hopeful anticipation. Well, the second section starts in verse 7 and goes through verse 11, and it's more like a roller coaster. Um, There's some very high highs Every name in the second section is a king over Israel or Judah. Um, So these are some historically significant people. And some of these are very great leaders who care for the people well and executed justice. So there's high highs, but there's very low lows, very, very low lows. There's some, uh, most of the names mentioned here are actually very wicked kings or terrible leaders who mistreated people. And this second section, this age of kings, ends um, in the lowest low, with the kingdom having become a place of great injustice and great darkness, and ultimately the people exiled from their land, from their kingdom altogether, the kingdom seemingly reduced to nothing, exiled in Babylon. So that's the second section. Now the third section picks up at the exile in Babylon, and it leads us up to the time of Jesus. And this time, uh, this age, is it's a time of waiting but it feels less hopeful. It often actually feels kind of hopeless. Um, And by the time we get to Jesus at the end of this genealogy, the family tree that once boasted great historically significant kings um, is just a list of names who we don't know anything about outside of Matthew 1. They're included here because 
I guess Jesus knew his family <laughs> background, his family tree. But these are not historically significant folks. Um, so that's a bit surprising um, to have a genealogy of uh, someone who's going to be king over God's kingdom that kind of goes through these ups and downs that has some figures you probably wouldn't include. Um, but maybe the most surprising thing about this genealogy isn't the uneven structure. But the most surprising thing is the unexpected people who are mentioned. In, in the ancient world, um, genealogies usually only included men. If you go back and look at genealogies, it usually just includes men because what genealogies were were kind of like a legal chain of custody, a father to son. It was showing rights of inheritance. Or if it was a king, it was showing that they are uh, legitimate rulers connected to the previous king, father to son, father to son. But notice if you read through, if you pay attention to this genealogy, there's actually four women mentioned before we even get to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So five women in total in this genealogy. That right there is simply remarkable. In the ancient world, it just genealogies just included men. But these, uh, these women that are listed are remarkable for other reasons as well. Um, it, it mentions Tamar. It, it mentions Rahab. It mentions Ruth. It, me it mentions Bathsheba. None of these women were Israelites by physical descent. None of them. Tamar and Rahab, they were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was Arabian. So even in, in here, in the genealogy of Jesus, we have foreign blood. We have outsiders that are the grandmothers of Jesus Christ. But not only that, these were women whose stories, they're all included in the Old Testament, their stories were marked by facing injustices done against them they were lives that were wrapped up in complicated situations of abuses of power against them um, and their use of cunning and sometimes even deceit in response. Women who, like many women throughout history, have had, who have had to navigate impossible situations in the face of stuff happening to them. Now, we won't go into all the details now, but these are stories that if you were making a genealogy, if you were telling someone the story of your family to show how respectable and clean and, and legitimate your background would be, you, you wouldn't include these stories. They're not bright spots of history. Now, I mention all of this strange family tree or this shady fam family tree because the point of it, the point of Matthew 1, this genealogy, is this. What sustains the promise made to Abraham and the promise made to David is not uh, that this family is this big group of especially holy men, because they're not. Some of them are downright wicked. Um, the point of Matthew 1 is what sustains God's promises through the ages leading up to Jesus Christ is God's intentions. It's God at work. Even in the middle of this great unfaithfulness of the descendants of Abraham and David, God's intention to bring his kingdom to earth, his gracious kingdom to earth, God's intentions to bless every family on earth through a descendant of Abraham are brought about by God, not by us, not by the family of Jesus. So that's the tree. And that leads us to my final section, what I'm calling the unexpected fruit 
So we've seen the strange family tree. Well, now let's see the unexpected fruit of that tree. So all of this brings us to verse 16, when there is a very sudden and dramatic break in this genealogy. Notice through most of the genealogy, we've seen blank is the father of blank. Blank is the father of blank. It's this, uh, it's this equation, this repetition of the form. And then look at verse 16. It does not say Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says this, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. It does not say Joseph, the father of Jesus. Now, Matthew makes clear that there's a break in this genealogy. That mankind, as we've said, could not bring forth the promises of Abraham and David. That the kind of thing that God was doing in Jesus required God to break into this family tree and to bring from this family tree fruit that it could not produce itself. So even though this genealogy in part does serve, like any genealogy, to connect Jesus back to the historical figures of Abraham and David, to show in the eyes of everyone that, yeah, he's the, he's the legal heir. We can trace the line back. This genealogy also makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is not just the inevitable product of his family tree. He's not simply the fruit that this tree naturally brought out. To do what God intended to do, to do what God wanted to do, to bring salvation to us, to cause his kingdom to come for his glory and for our good, God had to do this. That we couldn't bring it forward. God had to call forth in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the faithful prophet, priest, and king. He had to bring about Jesus Christ, which is the point for this genealogy, not just in Matthew 1, but that's the point for us today. Because this isn't just a history lesson. This isn't just a list of names that we don't recognize. The whole point of this is to make it abundantly clear to us that God's intention to, for us God's intention to bring us His grace, God's intention to bring us into His kingdom cannot happen by our good intentions, no matter how good they are. It can't happen by our good works. It has to be by His grace or it isn't going to happen, period. It has to be Him at work. It's going to require uh, that, that we realize that we find ourselves in a world that's in an absolute mess, and if we look inwardly, we find hearts that are an absolute mess. And we cannot bring out from within ourselves the life and thriving that God wants for, for us, no matter how hard we want it, no matter how hard we try. It's going to require Him working. And it's going to require Him giving us that grace as a gift. And that's what He does in Jesus Christ. In his life, death, and resurrection, he secures for us a hope embedded, the hope embedded in those promises to Abraham and to David so long ago. So now we today have access to the gracious God through Jesus Christ. So now we belong to God's kingdom over which Jesus is king. No longer slaves to sin or fear. No longer slaves to death. Because in the genealogy of Jesus... If wickedness, if exile, if a tree, a shady tree that had rotted to its roots could not stop God from bringing about his story of redemption in Jesus Christ, if all the failures of the descendants of Abraham and David could not stop God bringing forth our King and Savior Jesus Christ, 
then nothing going on in our world, nothing going on in our lives can stop him from bringing his grace to us either. And that's profound good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this unexpected good news from something like a genealogy. I thank you that we can look in these words and see this, uh, the, the oddness of this genealogy and in the oddness of it, see your grace at work in our broken world. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would set our hearts on him, uh, engage us in our minds, imaginations, our hearts, affections, and our hands, actions, Lord, to become people who are more and more like him. I thank you for your salvation of us, for your grace. Let us receive it as a gift and let us rest in it as our home. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's respond in singing.